0: Between 1970 and 2011, one school exploited troubled teen industry more than any other. How did one man manage to convert his own experience at one such behavior modification program into a legal business that scarred thousands of its students? This is the story of Ilan's school. What are you doing? Are you taking the energy out of people? That is truly what this topic is gonna do today. Friends and associates, you have either joined me today based off of the main podcast episode that you have listened on Paris Hilton and the Provo Canyon School, or... You are joining me today just on a completely new video. You have somehow heard about this topic and want to know more, want to know if you should invest your time into another documentary that is called The Last Stop, that is based off on this school. And to that, I have to say a couple of things. Yes, welcome. You do want to hear about this topic. You do want to learn more about it, especially if you like listening to dystopian kind of stories. If, you know, you watch Hunger Games for specific reasons, that is, that you can fully immerse yourself into a world, and then, like, when you get out of it, you're like, wow, this world feels weird. Or maybe Game of Thrones. You know, it applies to, like, multiple TV shows. Sometimes Dexter, sometimes Money Heist. Literally every single series that you watch. Yes, if that is what you're looking for, well, I hope I deliver on that front today, and you do learn a lot more about Elan School. And then, on to the second part, if you should watch that documentary, The Last Stop, yes, definitely, 20,000% yes. Listen to the story on the history, on the background, on the immersion into the Elan School, and then go ahead and watch the documentary. If this is your first time here, it's not a secret as people who have been subscribed for a while will let you know down in the comments that I don't like true crime documentaries. I watch them sometimes to learn on the topic, like I have watched a fair share of them. I just don't like consuming true crime content through them, because usually they have an agenda and they miss out on so much information. This documentary is the only one the only one that I would recommend. Netflix documentaries need to move on, need to move the fuck away. When I tell you I have stopped so many times during this documentary because I forgot to make notes. I was like, oh my God, I miss that so much. Because I would get so in... Mers Like, it'd be so intense. It was so good. It's just incredibly freaking good. I sometimes watch for half an hour. I'm like, oh my god, I'm doing this as a topic. (laughs) Like, I need to be making notes. I need to be making observations. Because it just literally places you there. And it's so well done where the interviews don't take away from the actual plot, but rather it's all just done in a sequential way where it actually explains to you the whole process that all of these students would go through is just... It's a masterpiece. I don't know how this thing is more popular. I'll put a link in the description box, because I found it for free on YouTube, you know. So, before it gets removed, probably flagged by somebody, you watch it and you don't flag that channel, okay? (laughs) It's like, you watch it for free, you don't flag what you get for free. Also, it's, like, good quality. I don't know how they found that movie and then uploaded it. Probably some DVD thing. Shut it. And let's actually dive into the topic. So, for us to understand the Lan School and how it came about, we have to go about a decade or two behind in history to understand synonyms. What is synonym? If I were to make a guide for dummies, how would I portray it? Well, the way I explain it to myself, and a lot of you are going to start clenching for those keyboards in order to type the angry comment down in the comments in a split second. Don't do it. Stop it. Stop it right now. So, synonym, it isn't a building, right? It isn't a place. It's a concept. It's a program. In a way, it's a religion. It's how I think cults think about religion and propagating something. And that something is that punishment is therapeutic, that actually people... Usually, drug addicts, the troubled teens, need to be punished, need to be shown the tough love in order for their parents to get their children back the way that they knew them, before the addictions, before them running away on the streets, before them parting it up. Now, the reason why I found it the easiest to explain it to myself as a religion is that in religion, you would usually have some sort of scripture. You would have Bible, Quran, etc. And then you would have the establishments where that message is propagated. Synonym, in a way, is more of a cult because there is no such scripture. There is no proof, no medical evidence that this had ever worked. And, spoiler alert, it doesn't. It scarred thousands and thousands of students that have been on the other side of receiving what they are selling, of receiving what was propagated through Synanon, this whole tough love concept. But just like with cults, Sinan accounted on certain level of desperation, usually desperation by either the parents or the foster system. And they counted on that to send them more and more of these students for them to be able to spread the message that didn't really exist, that somebody just created in their mind, and then to propagate it, to make those establishments, to propagate that message, and in doing so, to make the most money out of it. To reluctantly go back to my religion reference, with sinanon, as it kept spreading, as people kept sending their kids, as the tuition started increasing, and as the foster system started placing kids that were younger and younger into those systems, of course, then people who started being in charge in all of these institutions started taking their own spin on it. So, boot camps started arising, religious camps, the labor camps where you would just be working 24 seven. Every single person who was in charge of it had their own spin of it. Which also just goes to show how unregulated this was, because if this was to be working, if people sent to these schools were to be receiving actual therapy and actual help, and by people I mean mostly teenagers, well, then all of these variations wouldn't be able to happen, wouldn't be able to stem away from one such program. Because of this, because of all of the variations, and because every single one of these institutions had found an actual loophole in order to make what people endure in those locations illegal, a lot of these organizations still exist today. Canyon school still exists today. Paris Hilton is trying to shut it down. Still exists. So even when synonym as a concept, as the core of it got dissolved in the 90s, its roots still remained operating through all of these different organizations. And for you to understand where everything stemmed from, we need to start with the original psychopath. The original person who thought that such tough love would actually work without any really valid reason, as you're about to learn. So, let us talk about Charles Dederich. Charles was born in Ohio in 1913, and there are a couple of things in his childhood that will influence all of his further decisions. When he was four years old, his dad died in a car accident, and his mom, from that point on, raised him as a devout Roman Catholic. He would be brought up to believe that if he isn't to go to church on Sundays, he is going to go directly to hell. However, when he was 14, he read a copy of H.G. Wells' The Outline of History. And from that point on, something switched, and he became a militant atheist. So completely disregarded all of his previous beliefs. And because of that confusion, because of the trauma that he experienced when he was younger, and this was still 1910s, technically, he started drinking. So he's drinking from his early teenage years. We kind of lose track of him through his 20s and 30s. We only know that he married twice. He suffered from meningitis at the age of 29. He started speaking with his growl. He was just angry at the world. He wasn't the one who liked learning or who liked working himself. And then at the age of 40, with his second marriage falling through, he moves to Santa Monica. Here in Santa Monica, he finally thought, well, something has to give. Like, I have two marriages that have fallen through now. I have had this addiction since my early teenage years. One day, he just walked into the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And from the moment he hit the stage, from the moment he started sharing his story with other people, who then interacted, some of them laughed, some of them cried, some of them then shook his hand afterwards, wanted to know more... From that point on, he was transfixed. He kept returning, sharing his story. He said, like, if they allowed me, I would be the person talking each and every night, just sharing it, which, you know... Is probably not the best idea. If you, that is your thought process, like other people need to share, that should be also the part of the... That should be the part of the healing process? W- what do I know? I don't know. I just hope that that is how it works. But that, that never popped as a red flag in his head. Not just that, but then as he kept returning, there were some drug addicts that started popping in. Of course, this started off as one drug addict walking in, you know, claiming that he is only addicted to alcohol, and then bringing his buddies to the group. And from that point on, the language became more aggressive, like the language these people would bring to it. And Charles really loved this. He loved that it wasn't just them, like, being vulnerable, sharing this in this emotional way. He loved that all of these people are bringing different characters. And suddenly, all of these meetings are getting more and more coarse, more and more aggressive. So what he also realized, probably as you and me are, is that this is Alcoholics Anonymous. It isn't there to help drug addicts. For that, there should be a different dedicated group. So Charles in his super powered on probably drugs at this point as well brain, he decided, why don't I be that person to provide the location? Why don't I move all of these drug addicts to my own house? offer them couches where they're gonna sleep on. Because, because Charles thought that the drug addicts aren't actually fully-fledged adults. So, from that point on, yeah, this is fully getting into cult vibes. This is fully getting into the cult energy. He moved them, to his couches. I don't know how huge his house in Santa Monica was, but probably a lot bigger than we all think. And they started living all together. And they also started calling him dad, because of the whole thing that they're not adults when they're addicts, in his mind, again. By moving all of these addicts to his own house, they also moved the sessions on. And those sessions started being called synonyms. It comes from two words. Well, the short version of two words that, again, he thought uh, in his own head. One is symposium, so a seminar of sorts. And the other one is anonymous, so sin anon When these synonyms started being too large for his flat, he leased a storefront in Ocean Park for around $100 a month. So that same year, this is 1958, the group started being incorporated as a non-profit for them to make this official. So Synanon at that point technically was an actual location, was an actual establishment. And this is just a fun fact here, just to show you that this guy was actually a cult leader of sorts and how huge his ego was. He thought that this innovation of synonyms, the Seminars Anonymous, is going to be on par with the alphabet, that his creation would become as famous as Coke, as in Coca-Cola, not cocaine. That would be (laughs) a bit ironic if it was actually cocaine. But his idea was somehow just too ahead of its time. So the city didn't share Charles's opinion here, and they basically bulldozed over that building. Charles didn't become hopeless, because at this point, he had about 65 or so members. So, he just knew he has to find a different location. And this is when he moved them to the National Guard Armory Building, which was just by the beach of Santa Monica. Ten days after that move, though, he would end up being arrested for treating all of the drug addicts without a license. And operating a hospital in a residential zone, according to the LA Times. He would somehow miraculously spend only 25 days in jail for this, not having the license to treat drug addicts. And again, this just wasn't on anybody's radar. So as soon as he got out of jail, he implemented what I divided into three things, in order for Sinanon to start on that successful pathway of becoming the future Coca-Cola. First being the referrals. Addicts referring other addicts in order for the membership to grow. Second, I titled merch, which is making sure that the organization is profitable. And third, press. I'd like to call this, you know, stats, scientific, proof that this works, But that's not what this was. It was quite literally making sure that the press hears about how successful this organization was without anything ever to back it up. So let's just go into a bit more detail on each and every point. Ten years after it was founded, Sinanon would boast to have at least 1,100 members and that it was receiving $2.5 million a year in donations. The locations were now spread out from Santa Monica to West L.A., San Diego, San Francisco, Detroit, New York City, even Puerto Rico. And with that expansion came the advertising. So, they also owned a number of petrol stations and ran a one million a year specialty advertising business, selling pens and office supplies with a synonym logo, in order to start up the conversation in other people's offices. You know, just betting on the fact that somebody might actually have an addiction or have a friend that does, that they can refer back to them. The marketing, whether through merch or what they were selling to press, was always buy from Sinanon and save a life. He'd tell Life magazine that Sinanon is a tunnel back into the human race. And he would, of course, have stats to back that up, saying that 80% of addicts treated by Sinanon stayed clean in the aftermath. Reporters and journalists, loving the good quotes, fell for Charles Dederich straight away. He was said to be behind the saying, today is the first day of the rest of your life, just a fun fact, if you didn't know. He also would say for the New York Times, crime is stupid, delinquency is stupid, and the use of narcotics is stupid. What Sinan is dealing with is addiction to stupidity. This could have very well been where the business stood. He amassed a lot of money, he expended for all these different areas, and he was supposedly helping all these drug addicts. He offered them a place to stay, and in those places, they also shared their trauma, shared what got them to become an addict in the first place. So, what could go wrong? Well, if we have learned anything through history, is that people, like Charles Dederich, are money-hungry. No matter how much money they have, it is just never enough. And at a certain point, 1,100 members just didn't seem, like, press-worthy. It didn't seem like it's gonna give him more interviews. He needed more exposure. And for that, he needed more members. He did it on the sly. In the beginning, in 1969, nobody really even noticed this shift. But this would be when this organization dropped the concept of graduation. So all of these addicts, as he is supported by that fact of 80%, would eventually, of course, not need his help anymore. They would be able to integrate into the society, find a new job, and move on. So that would be confirmed by them graduating the Sinanon program.
1: Throughout the 1960s, many new treatment programs have been launched in and out is Synanon, a private organization founded and managed by ex-addicts. The best thing for people is people, and Synanon provides the environment to bring together people
2: from all walks of life. Synanon was founded by a man named Charles Diedrich, an ex-alcoholic and frequent speaker at Alcoholics Anonymous. It was his answer to the dilemma drug addicts were facing during the early 60s there was nowhere they could go for help. During that time, drug addiction was seen as much more severe than alcohol addiction.
0: However, from 1969, Charles changed the strategy, and he wanted those people to stay on. So he wanted them to be treated, and then once they're well, to stay within the organization in order to welcome non-addicts. In order for Charles to get out of the dope fiend business, which is what he called it, not my wording of it, he started creating what, again, he named punk squads, which were sort of boot camps that were dedicated to disciplining juvenile delinquents. And those juvenile delinquents started being sent to synonym camps and institutions by either their parents or the courts. Suddenly, this shift became obvious to everybody in 1970s, because from a drug treatment program, synonym suddenly became a psychotherapy program that started attracting middle-class people through the synonym game. The game here isn't based on the incel culture, it isn't based on the Neil Strauss book, it is based on everything from his childhood, everything that I have been mentioning through the story of Charles Dederich, Everything that he had seen working so far, after he stepped away from religion, after he became an atheist, and then has been drinking for multiple years, the only thing he saw working was once he went into those AA meetings, once he started speaking up, and in particular, once the language changed, once the drug addicts came on board and started using different aggressive language in order to speak to you. So, everything that he has seen has now been implemented into the game. The game is now commonly known as the attack therapy. So, a bunch of people would go into these meetings that were run by the ex-addicts. Remember, the graduation was now aborted. They would stay on board running these institutions. So, they are gonna run those meetings. And in them, you share your most vulnerable moments, and everybody else humiliates you. That is pretty much it, in a nutshell.
3: And I was afraid to get treatment because what I'd read about addiction treatment was that the whole idea was to humiliate and break and attack you. And I thought, that's exactly the opposite of what I need, because the reason I'm using drugs is because I feel uncomfortable and unsafe around other people. And so when I got into recovery, eventually, I wanted to understand where did this idea come from that we should break addicts to fix them.
0: However, because he is still running this as a cult with everybody living there together with the ex-addicts running the show, of course, there were some rules for you to stay because now it had more members, more rules had to come along. So by the mid-1970s, in Sinanen, women were required to shave their heads, married couples needed to break up and take new partners, men would be given forced vasectomies, and a couple of pregnant women were forced to have abortions.
2: So Diedrich came up with a solution, using the 12 steps made Famous and Alcoholics Anonymous, but with a new twist.
3: He thought that AA wasn't tough enough. He thought that the twelve steps were all well and good, but they really wouldn't work unless you forced people to do them.
2: At the core of Sinanon were group sessions that relied on highly intense confrontation between group members. The idea was to break down an addict's defenses to make them reveal their innermost, deepest troubles. Only then would they be able to help themselves towards sobriety. In Sinanon, this ideology was known as the game. Today, it's more commonly known as...
3: Attack therapy is basically the idea that you've developed this horrible, bad personality, and we need to attack you and break you entirely in order to eliminate it and to rebuild you as a good person.
0: It will come as no surprise to anybody that here, sooner rather than later, people actually started honing on on all of the abuse. Studies would show that synonyms in counter groups, the game, the attack therapy sessions, could produce lasting psychological harm, and that only 10 to 15 percent of the addicts that participated in them recovered. Stanford Prison Experiment came about in 1971, and it demonstrated for everybody it was still clear in everybody's head that situations where severe treatment of powerless people gets rewarded will, in turn, yield more abuse. With more and more young teenagers being assigned to Sinanon after they were either runaways and then the court system assigned them, or they were foster children that were unwanted by other families, the movement started being created called the Underground Railroad in order to seek help for those young teenagers to be returned to their parents. Once those groups started being created, they would expose the attack therapy sessions, and once those sessions wouldn't be enough, these kids would also receive severe beatings in the basements of synonym buildings. Finally, there was enough rage for the state grand jury in Marine County to issue a report in 1978 that attacked Sinanon with some strong supporting evidence of its child abuse and also for the monetary profits that were going into Dederich's pocket. Because as it will come to light, and this is one of the biggest ironies in this whole story, is that Dederich declared that Sinanon is a tax-exempt religious organization, the Church of Sinanon. Hence why all of the buildings, all of the institutions, everything where he has spread out, they don't actually have to pay any tax. So in the end, it won't even be the students. It won't even be the enraged parents, the press, the courts that will shut down Sinanon. It would be the IRS. As the IRS is looking into them, the journalists keep digging and the lawyers of Sinanon would always fire back and will start, you know, suing all these journalists, the media houses, for libel, defamation. But the trick in that is that by doing so, they also had to provide the evidence that actually what they are saying is true. What Sinanon is saying is true, that there's no abuse going on. So by default, they were actually handing over the documents to the media saying that the things aren't as clear and as true as they are trying to depict. Meaning that in 1978, finally, NBC exposed Sinanon.
2: Sinanon achieved massive success. However, it wasn't long before stories of abuse and cult-like behavior began to emerge. And after a lengthy legal battle with the IRS, Sinanon would eventually shut down. But not without leaving behind a legacy that is still being felt to this day.
0: After the exposé, after all of the internal documents were actually shown to the public, it took only six weeks for the LAPD to perform a search of one of the ranches. During their investigation, they will also come across different lawsuits and arrests against Synanon members. But what really set everything in motion for the downfall of Synanon was the arrest of no one else but Charles Dederich. Charles was arrested while drunk on December the 2nd, 1978. He was let out on probation, but was disallowed from taking part in managing Sinanon. And at this point, IRS is completely on their ass, and they have revoked the tax exempt status of the whole organization, asking them... What am I saying, asking them? As if the IRS, like, formally asks ordering them, rather, Maya, to pay $17 million in back taxes. This led to Sinanon going into bankruptcy and formally dissolving in 1991. But by the point of this dissolution, by the point that it was shut down, the model, as I mentioned earlier on in the story, was widely copied across all of these organizations run by different people, Again, mostly the ex-addicts and people that didn't really have degrees in this area that weren't ever supposed to run one such business who kind of went free spirit on it. So, you will see the births of the seed in Florida, for example, in 1971, that applied synonymous methods to teenagers. From Christian programs claiming that they can cure gay teens, through boot camps that were extremely successful through 80s and 90s, to behaviorist programs like the Provo Canyon School in Utah. All of these programs, fully supported by the government, continued operating some of them would end up being investigated and closed but a lot of them are still open today including one such program where the founder of elan school is going to receive his treatment
3: after getting massive amounts of publicity a major motion picture you know all the evening news all the big media was saying how this is this wonderful cure It spread to New York, where Phoenix House and Daytop were founded. Daytop
1: Village is typical of the halfway house concept, where the addict is slowly eased back into society, one step at a time. Synanon evolved into Daytop and other therapeutic...
0: The guy that will go on to become the founder of the Elan School will have the most nonsensical logic, but will also have some similarities with Charles Dedridge, who founded Sinanon. See if you can spot them. It is so essential and is just imprinted in these people's childhood. And it's just what they make out of it that, to you and me, makes zero common sense. But to these people, it just defines their whole future. Joey Ritchie was born on August the 29th, 1946. He was born in an Italian-American family in Port Chester, near New York. Richie's dad abandoned him and his mom while she was still pregnant with him. And after he was born, his mom just handed him over to her parents to bring him up. Just like through his life, Charles was seen as a leader... Joey had similar qualities. Among his playmates in school, he would be the one who would be gregarious, talkative, able to act as a leader, and many kids looked up to him as such. Under that layer, that glib of friendliness, lied the person that was thriving on power, on dominance, and didn't care who he hurt in order to gain it. Something that is prevalent in this story, and all of these people have, even, and a lot of you will disagree if you go on to watch that documentary that I recommended, people who are addicts and then become members of staff and then work as members of staff, is just that huge ego but also the huge ability to justify their actions to themselves and always have a cover, to always be like, well, you know, we are the Church of Sinanon or whatever. And like, you're not even religious. What the fuck are you on about? It's just, there was always a way that they could explain their actions to themselves that I find so bizarre. Like, Joey has the answer for everything. I'll play as many recordings as I can throughout this episode. He has the answers to everything. It's just like, oh, yeah, completely logical. And you're like... Everything that came out of your mouth is actual nonsense. Like, how do you see this as a completely logical, like, are we speaking the same language? Am I just an immigrant person here that doesn't really correspond? And that kind of translates to everybody. From those staff members to the founders, the co-founders, the people that ran all of the other establishments once they would expand, is just beyond, but I guess you have to tell it to yourself. You have to convince yourself in order to believe something that there is no substance, there is no basis for in the first place. From his early age, Richie developed greed for money. Nothing was ever enough, and of course, because he came from nothing really, that meant he started stealing it from his friends. So through the early teenage years, he started engaging in acts of theft, robbery, and burglary. In order to prove just how tough he really was and how cool he really was, when he was 12, he also started dating his middle school science teacher and became promiscuous by the time he entered high school. He'd skip class, commit acts of vandalism, break into cars, bully younger children, torture animals, steal food from the restaurants, just for the sake of it after some time. But just like Charles had his alcohol addiction in his early teenage years that would leave the imprint for the rest of his life, Joey Ritchie had two events— One was when he was 15 years old. He was injured in a car accident and had to spend some months in hospital recovering. And then, because of the pain, he kind of got hooked onto the painkillers. This will seep over into his life after spending some time in the hospital, and eventually he will get hooked on other drugs. He would continue with his petty crimes, stealing money, in order to fuel now his drug addiction. Drug of choice for Joey was heroin. Due to this, he dropped out of school. And this is when the second thing that left the imprint on Joey, at least in my opinion, happened in 1967, when he was arrested. And this time, he was arrested for robbing a mail truck. Because he could talk by this point, because he knew how to manipulate the system and he knew how the system worked, he talked his way out of a prison sentence and instead was sent to a rehab center in Connecticut as the part of his plea bargain. So that was supposed to keep him out of jail and that rehab center will end up being Daytop Village. Here, Joey Ritchie is going to get introduced to drug rehabilitation program and therapeutic residential treatment centers. And this industry is soon about to define the rest of his life. Datop originally opened in 63, and it was run by a psychiatrist and a father, as in an actual priest, that visited Sinan location in Connecticut and were super impressed about it and wanted to open their own branch where they're going to practice similar kind of therapy. The acronym should stand for Drug Addict Sealed to Probation. But there are accounts, probably these drug addicts inside of those programs just making jokes and making their own versions of that acronym that state that actually it should be Drug Addict Sealed to Persuasion or yield to others' persuasion because of the T.O.P. at the end, and none of them really is a full acronym of that. But this program, just like Synanon, was truly based on peer-to-peer interaction. Here, Richie would face a therapeutic community model which was described as a supportive emotional community in which people feel secure, but at the same time are held strictly accountable for their behavior. And according to DATOP, and DATOP on its own, it is estimated that 85% of those treated by their program stay clean once they leave. Richie would not only get out of Daytop by believing that he was their success story, and there were accounts that he was, but also really believed that he can do this on its own. He can be a leader in this type of industry. So in 1969, he married and started his own drug rehab center that he named Survival Inc., Due to the rampant drug use in 60s and 70s, this center soon started becoming flooded with patients. But that wasn't his only job at the time. Richie found another outlet for his addictions. He started gambling, he owned a racetrack in Maine, out of where he would earn millions of dollars from horse racing... And even at this workplace, he would end up being accused by his employees of being abusive physically, emotionally. He was sued three times by the female employees for sexual harassment and death threats. And in a typical psychopathic style, he would also accuse anybody that criticized him. He would also ensure to tackle any labor unions that were organized in order to challenge his practices. To really add salt to the wound, this wouldn't be the first time, like, the first red flag that should have popped up on somebody's system after this kind of man is also running a business that is supposed to reform others. But it isn't. He was on the FBI's radar because of his involvement with the underworld. Many people suspected that Richie had ties to the organized crime syndicates, like the Mafia. And because he was involved in the underground gambling establishments, extortion rackets, trafficking operations, he was also investigated multiple times by the FBI. So beginning of 1970s, Ricci is getting investigated by the FBI. Mostly because they found a the connection between the horses on the racetrack and how they were actually bought out by the Italian member of the mafia. So they were looking into Ricci for that. While that is reaches world, the whole country is swept by rebellious hippie subculture. Kids are suddenly revolting against the system that they were raised in. They're challenging the conservative traditions, and they're fighting for more freedom for themselves. These rebellions would lead to problems with the law, involvement with drugs or sexual promiscuity, and skipping school or dropping out of it. Which, in turn, led to the moral panic among the parents. These now-desperate parents realize that this is beyond the age where they can just spank their child. They can just, you know, try to tame this kind of behavior at home. These children were young teenagers or older teenagers now, and they were kind of out of options. They just didn't know how something like this is supposed to be treated. This led many parents to believe that the way to combat this new rebellious attitude among teens is to forcibly correct that supposed behavior by enrolling them into these controversial alternative schools for troubled teens. And in one such culture, Joey Ritchie finally saw the opportunity that he was waiting for. In 1970, he met a child psychiatrist, this guy named Gerald Davidson. And Gerald specialized in adolescent behavior modification programs, especially focusing on drug abuse and criminal versatility.
2: Version of Daytop. And then he was introduced to Gerald Debs, Dr. Davidson was a Harvard-educated uh,
1: psychiatrist. And they went up to Maine. From what I understand, Maine had less stringent
2: laws on who could operate and what kind of permits you needed. In 1970, Joe Ritchie and Gerald Davidson opened their first facility in the small town of Sebago, Maine. They called it Elan One. And like Daytop, the program mainly focused on rehabilitating hardened
0: drug addicts. Finally, Joy saw the way forward. He owed his own recovery to the Daytop program that he attended. And here, with his Harvard-educated psychiatrist, He saw a way to found a school where he will be a leader, he will be able to manipulate the program the way that he wanted, and he will be a leading force in this new rehabilitation therapy that so many parents were desperate for. Ilan is a French word that means energy, enthusiasm. We kind of nicked it from French, like, we still use it back home in Serbia. Like, when you say ima šalana, it's just like, you have energy, you have the whim, it's, it's a bit too much. Like, if you tell somebody, like, you got Elan, it's like, you know, chill the fuck down a bit. Like, calm down. I have heard it many times during my life. It should come as no surprise. But this, in Joey's head, translated their whole mission. While Gerald might have been motivated to start one such school from the genuine wish to help the troubled kids, well, Joey's motivations were always of monetary sort. They were always about money and power. And he knew he only had to manipulate one person in order to start it with him. And that person just had to be somebody who was of the Harvard education, who had a degree, who parents would find trustworthy. Once he does that, once one such credible person is on board, he will then manage to convince everybody else, and that will provide him with a loophole for his sadistic fantasies to finally see the light of day. Because finally, he is about to have all of the power that he always wanted to exert over the younger, vulnerable generations. All of it legal, as approved by their parents. Richie chose to open Ilan in the state of Maine because Maine had the least strict laws regarding such facilities in the whole of the northeast region of the U.S. This led to them buying the area in the rural town of Poland, Maine, in 1974. It's literally in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of this wilderness, where he purchased a 33-acre area of land on this old hunting lodge. He cleared it out and then just made a series of trailers and buildings in order to serve for the purposes of this behavioral modification school. Because of his time in Daytop, and also because of his role as a leader, as the owner of the racetrack, if we are to believe that he also has connections with the underworld, he knew that he needed to do well when it comes to the press. That he needed to sell this. He had the selling point, And that that selling point also really only needed to be a front. Because once he actually has the money, once the kids are actually sent there he doesn't really mind what happens to them because the whole influence is again on that peer-to-peer modification system. So the staff is just really going to do all of his work on his behalf. This means that throughout the years, Ilan will be advertised in the newspapers, in the magazines, as this glossy, picture-perfect thing. It's like a Hallmark movie. There's stables with horses. There's this beautiful building in the middle of nowhere. They sort of show the insides, but not really. It's like, oh, it's bunk beds, and, you know, your child is still getting the hostel experience, but we are still reforming them, so, you know, it's not luxurious. And the emphasis is, that it is huge, they're going to be doing work, you know, getting the drugs out of their system, and that they're going to be in the middle of nowhere, meaning they cannot run away. ...to deal with, put it that way. Adolescents are very shrewd. If you go into a hospital and you
1: don't want to stay there, all you have to do is make an aggressive gesture at a nurse and you're kicked out. All you have to do is light your bed on fire and you're kicked out. So consequently, kids learn how to get out of treatment.
2: They were trying to find a school that would keep me, no matter how many times I ran away. Finally, in August, when I was 12, they shipped me up to Elan because Elan said that they kept runaways.
1: At Elan, the first thing they learned is, you're not gonna get out of here. If you burn the place down, we'll sleep in a tent together. You know, no matter how many times you run away, we will go and get you. Why? Because we have a commitment, all right, to you and to ourselves.
0: At the beginning, as we see from the last stop documentary, the parents would send their kids who were already 18, so, like, late teens, some of them in their 20s. It was kind of like that boot camp lifestyle that they would be sent to. And Joey himself said that this was no utopia, that he wasn't selling anybody dreams.
1: We don't bullshit kids. We don't tell kids that this is some kind of utopia that everything is going to work out for you and so they bring me into this trailer and we were being told about the program
2: look my mother straight dead in the eye and say this is the last stop on the bus
1: not one time did anybody say even hinted at what i was about to go
2: through if you don't send your son here he's going to be dead
1: you can count on it you have six minutes to say goodbye to your parents and if you say anything disrespectful
2: to them i'm going to put you in a corner
0: We hear everybody referring to this as the last stop, because the parents would be told, if you don't do this, if you don't send your child to one of these schools, they're gonna end up dead. They're gonna go out, meet a predator, somebody's gonna kidnap them, or if they're addicts, you know, they're gonna face a different kind of destiny. This is your last chance. So, we see a bunch of kids that are talking about their offenses that they committed as kids during their teenage years, stealing, behavior issues, beating up others and getting into fights, getting drunk and not coming home, so their parents freaking out that they have run away, you know, reporting them to the police, them just turning back up. The most common issue that those first kids were sent to Ilan for was still substance abuse. However... Soon enough, the tables seem to have turned. And the tables have turned because Richie realized that if these parents have enough money, their issues matter enough. That could mean one of the two things, really from one of the testimonials, or the documentary, I'm not really sure where i read this, but it could mean that somebody just had the money, and possibly could send their child there because they truly believed in this, they believe that this is the only way out, this is the last stop, but in an innocent way. So, there was one testimonial that I have read about a woman that was brought up in Dubai, and that they moved to the US. And her parents were like, well, I don't want my child to be westernized. I don't want her to engage in promiscuity. So we have heard about this school, you know, we've just read about it in the papers. Let's send her there for a couple of months. But the sinister side of it was that you could also have the money and your child could be simply even autistic back then, mentally ill, in need of actual support and treatment.
2: It started out early, it started out drunk. And most of the people were 18 and over. As a matter of fact, they were well within their 20s. Most of them were junkies, and Alon truly was their last stop before prison or death. And then they were convinced that they could uh, take on other people. Runaways, a lot of runaways.
1: Running away, or being truant from school. Promiscuity, you know, girls that had gotten pregnant as
2: teenagers. Uh, you're very violent offenders.
1: You
0: know, stealing
1: cars, breaking into houses. Marty Maxwell was there, he was there for Robin Banks.
0: And to give the parents the benefit of the doubt, just like I have done when speaking about Paris Hilton. This was, A, the time before the internet, the time before you can just Google things and, like, see multiple reviews on the first page of Google. Just, like, Google reviews saying, this is a no-go, don't send your kids there. This wasn't probably even the time when you could just, like, ring up, unless you actually have that kind of influence, where you can just ring up the governor in the state and be like, Hey, what is your connection with this place? And even if you did, Joey probably made sure to have those people in his pocket himself. And on the other hand, most of those parents, over 90%, I would say, actually looked into this, like, looked into this program and saw it as their last chance, as their last option. They would be getting calls about their kids running away, either that or, you know, one family member wouldn't be present. Like, the father would be absent, the mom would be drinking too much. Maybe those parents had their own addictions. Maybe they couldn't actually take care of that child. And even those who are healthy see their kids, see them running away, see them using substances, see them getting into fights. And they know if they were to encounter somebody, like a perp, on the street, the perp is not going to talk to your child. The perpetrator is not going to sit your child down and tell them, oh, actually, what you are doing isn't great. They are, at best, going to beat them up. At worst, your child is gonna end up dead because of their actions. So the whole selling point towards the parents was that you are about to receive your child back the way that you remember them, before they started rebelling, before the whole teenagehood, and before that whole shift. You know
1: that if he doesn't change, he's gonna get arrested. You know that sooner or later, he's gonna steal something to get money. I worried them a lot. The phone rings, 10 o'clock at night, 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, they were getting calls, you know, 2, 3 in the morning from the cops. You're shaking. You're wondering, what's this call going to mean? Your son's run away again. We don't know where he is. And that's the fear that we live in. We're ready to, uh, just example. ready to crack.
3: I love him so much. I wouldn't want to lose him it's important for for parents to know that we understand all of that we're going to help your child work through all of that so
1: that you can have the kid back that you remember and the one that you love
0: once one such parent is sold on this revolutionary style of therapy that is designed to radically change the teen from the deviancy that they are just currently going through to what they were before, just simply an upstanding citizens once they leave this program, they could then contact the staff at the Elan School and arrange to send their kids in order to undergo the behavioral therapy. The tuition has changed through years, but each child would eventually end up earning Elan School between fifty dollars to $60,000. And on this, in the documentary in particular, people say that at the time that was more than what college tuition used to cost. And most of these parents to that say, well, what is the price on life? Like, how can I put the price on life onto my kid? If I don't send them there, they're going to die. So I'm going to spare no dime in doing that. The parents are then advised by the Elan school not to notify the kids of this decision, because, of course, if they have rebelled so far, if they were to know what their parents plan to do, they're going to rebel even further. Once everything is in place, the contracts are signed, Elan would hire a teen escort company to abduct the child, the teenager usually, in the middle of the night from their bedroom and bring them to school. This is legal, by the way, even today, it is legal when it comes to these programs. So, with the element of surprise, in the middle of the night, a teenager would just wake up to usually two or more men that are gonna tackle them onto their bed, usually handcuff them, and then transport them into a van. In Paris Hilton's case, like, her sister, Nikki, remembered like, her parents crying in the middle of the night, and Paris crying, like, hearing everything happen. So, literally, her parents were quite physically supervising this whole abduction. So, every single testimonial on this, every single interview that I have watched, says, like, this is insane, because in your head, you're thinking either they're holding your parents hostage because why the fuck else would your parents allow for something like this to happen? Or maybe your parents weren't even there as this is happening. Maybe they have just given them keys to the house. So you're thinking, I'm getting abducted. And the only reason somebody abducts a teenager is usually for sexual abuse or simply for somebody to be killed.
1: Well, it's usually in the morning, you see, uh, when... Four residents, uh, generally big people, you know, uh, are taller and heavier, uh, will show up at, a, uh, at someone's house and uh, go into a new resident's bedroom and say, Hi, Johnny, we're from Milan and we'd like you to come with us. And they talk very nicely, but they're big and they're strong and they're insistent and there are four of them. And so it happens.
0: Usually in these vans where they were abducted, they are either blindfolded or there are simply no windows in the back of the van so that they don't see where they're going. So there is that surprise effect once they actually get out of that van, once they realize there is no way out. In the story of Paris Hilton, and with so many other teenagers during that time, they would already go to some camps of that sort, you know. They would already go to either boot camp or something, and nothing had worked. Some of them would manage to run away from those. And here, like, the horror that must happen in you when you realize oh, I haven't just been kidnapped from my own house, but there is no way out. I don't know what my parents have just signed, like, how long am I staying here? But nothing good is gonna come from this experience. And this is where the dehumanization begins. The student, as they're gonna be referred to from this point on, is quite literally thrown into the shower where they just have a shower, they're giving these clothes with no imagery, no branding, just bland. They have to dispose of all of their jewelry, anything that is personal to them. Just like so many cults, like the Stanford Prison Experiment and the actual prisons, Everything that Elan School has put into place is done in such a way to erase any form of individuality of any single person that is to attend it. Once you're showered and you're through the doors, you see the most bizarre imagery in every single one of those rooms. You see people doing menial jobs, like scrubbing the floors, whether it is with a mop or with a toothbrush. Then, in another room, you will see kids wearing signs hanging over their neck about how you should be humiliating them, what you should be calling them, and other kids just screaming at them.
1: So, I get in a lawn and I'm looking around in a lawn 7 and I'm like... Okay.
0: This kid is
1: scrubbing the corner. This kid is wearing a fucking piece of poster board on her neck. This kid is it's in the out yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. of I'm yeah. seen a
1: that in my life. Sure. Yeah.
3: I just remember looking around seeing people with signs and shaved heads and
1: somebody wearing like a clown outfit. I thought everybody was out of their minds.
3: I remember I was brought in during lunchtime and I sat down at the table and immediately I turned to the girl next to me. I'm like, this shit's fucking crazy. Like, where are, where am I? Where the
1: fuck am I? And apparently she was a, a non strength. Immediately, I got pulled into another room I got dealt with. So I started crying, like, profusely crying. Through a transfer. I was like, I'm not staying here. I was like, I don't want to be here. Like, you made a mistake. Like, this is not me. I don't know what the fuck is going on, but y'all are fucking crazy. Uh,
2: I I was almost begging to go back to the detention center. It was surreal, to
1: say the least. Like, it it was unreal. It was as if we were in a, a parallel universe. And for some reason, the kids were all acting like they liked it. Very bizarre.
0: Usually, as soon as students would encounter something like this, they would start crying and breaking down. And the staff would tell them to calm down, that they're disturbing the community. And immediately, they would throw them to the worst possible punishment, which is being handled. Where you would go into the office, or you would attend one of those meetings where you are the person wearing the sign, getting other people to scream at you and further humiliate you. If you possibly somehow manage to actually calm down and stop crying, you're eventually assigned a big brother. So you're introduced to somebody that initially you see as one and only person you can trust. But this person, of course, is there for a completely different purpose. The big brothers are there to educate the partner about why Ilan is so great for them and why there would be a failure not to accept it and just comply with everything that is thrown at them. But they are not a friend whatsoever. They are actually there to snitch on the non-strength, as we are going to talk when it comes to hierarchy, on the newbies. Because if you are, which you naturally would confide in somebody, finally find a person that peacefully talks to you, that is there to actually listen to you, which is what you think that this school is supposed to do in the first place, well, you would confide into something like, I'm planning to run away. Like, can you give me any advice? Like, how do I cope with this? How do I resist it? And as soon as you do, they are about to snitch to superiors. Just like with the Stanford prison experiment, those people, the big brothers, are there in order for them to take the sadistic pleasure out of using their superiority against you. After you're introduced to your big brother, you also learn to understand your position in the bizarre world of Elan hierarchy. And everything from when you can eat, sleep speak up, do any sort of menial jobs depends on your place in that hierarchy. The two main classes here are strength, so strength students, and non-strength students. And non-strength is where you start off, like every single person starts from just doing the most menial jobs. So you start as a non-strength, and as such, you're not permitted to talk to any other non-strengths. Only strengths... Can talk to non-strengths, so only the superiors can talk to the inferiors.
2: Therapized, if I can use that word. Each alone house functioned through the collective work of five offices. The service crew were the janitors, the kitchen crew handled the food, the business office filed paperwork, the communications office brought news from the outside world, and the expeditors enforced security. Each office was managed by a specific hierarchy of positions that each resident had to work through in order to graduate the program.
1: I remember
3: when you came in, you were non-strength and you were
1: a worker. Everybody went into the service crew first, and you were a worker. (laughs) Elan residents are taught to obey authority. They're made to work at menial jobs
2: to do what they're told to do. You just, you know, clean floors, you do this, you do that, you dust this. And then you had a ramrod. And you got some dudes coming around with a white glove, uh, checking your workout, you know. And if it wasn't right, well, he'd be there half a day again redoing it. There was Worker and Ramrod, and those
1: were the two non-strength positions. And in order to talk to somebody else that wasn't a strength, you had to have a strength being aware of your conversation.
0: As you're at the bottom of the hierarchy, you need to go through all five offices in order to graduate, in order to get out of Elan. These offices are either admin-like, communications office, getting you the news from the outside world, the one that kind of deals with... of the menial jobs and managing non-strengths. And it's only once you stop resisting the system, once you start following the rules, and once you go through the majority of those offices, that you can reach your first strength position, which is the expediter. So that's the first part of the hierarchy when you're considered strength. And expediters are the ones with the clipboard in hand. We are going to talk a bit more about them later. The head of expeditors is called Shingle. Then you have department heads who are the managers. And if you reach the level of the coordinator, you're the person running the house the whole day. All of these are the positions of the students. As we spoke about through the history of Joey Ritchie, CNN and everything, he did believe in that peer-to-peer communication, that the system actually ran itself. And in such fashion, most of the staff members, the people that are beyond those positions in the hierarchy, are also the graduates of the program. And this is all done because, in Rich's own words, he believed that the experience is the best way to learn. So there was nobody on the staff, let alone, of course, the actual students, who was qualified to actually run the whole reform school, the behavioral therapy part of it. These kids will never get a single hour of actual therapy in there. Now that you are in, you're familiar with the whole hierarchy and how everything works, you are to write a guilt letter to your parents. So this is to further enhance the severing of the ties with the outside world. You know, you are nobody, you're just dressed in this beige t-shirt, you're just like everybody else, and you need to write to your parents telling them why you deserved to be at Ilan School and not at home. And these letters, just like any form of communication with the outside world, is, of course, monitored, usually by the actual members of staff. So they don't really trust the students to be able to do these kind of tasks. In the script here, I put, this is why you need to establish code words and expressions. Start early. I only started doing this since I got completely obsessed with true crime. But if you learn anything from this, even if you were never to be found in any... Type of situation that I'm describing during this episode, please establish something that you would use on a daily basis. Like you know, instead of using hello, you usually say this word. So if you don't say it, somebody knows that, that is a sign that you're in danger. Or just like something that you say again in every single conversation, and then when either you say it differently or you don't say it that way, somebody knows you're being stalked. You're being kidnapped. Call the police. Establish it, please. If you learn anything from these code words are necessary. Because, of course, if the staff member suspects anything, you are to rewrite the letter and probably get punished after that as well. When it comes to the calls, the same principle would apply. First of all, you would have to earn to make a single call back home, and that would be a privilege. And then, usually, these calls were to be made from this isolated cabin, with one of the supervisors hanging over your head, one of the staff members, usually. And literally, if you were to utter a single word, try to warn your parents about the conditions in Ilan school, they would immediately make sure to cut that line. As I mentioned, these privileges, quote-unquote, had to be earned. You had to earn the right to write to your parents or to have a 15-minute weekly call with them that, again, could be cut off if you say the wrong word. And the way you earn that is, again, comply, 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 try to break the least amount of rules. However, in Ilan, the rules were made in order to be broken. Breaking of the rules was known as guilt. All guilt, no matter how small or insignificant, was punished in one way or the other. So, you would be given catalogs, the rules would be written on boards everywhere around Ilan. Let us go through some of them so that you understand what I mean by they were meant to be broken. You can Commit a guilt and get punished for talking too quietly or talking too loudly, talking to somebody without authorization, talking to a non-strength while being a non-strength, talking too much, not talking enough, looking outside, looking at the floor, sex, sex counted as anything, looking at somebody of the opposite sex, deliberately avoiding looking at somebody of the opposite sex being attracted to someone, making any sort of physical contact, no shaking hands at all, having bad thoughts. Then there are things like reacting to insults, reading or writing, not falling asleep or sleeping too long, laughing at a joke, looking up at somebody, smiling without permission, not smiling enough, swearing without permission, not screaming in those meetings when you're supposed to scream at somebody... You get the gist. What I meant was that these rules were impossible to follow, and in that way, they're meant to be broken, because every single person, every single student in there is meant to be punished multiple times a day. And here is where the role of the expeditors come into play. Expeditors, you will remember, are the first level of the hierarchy class where you are a strength, and as such, they are privileged to start doing admin, to become somebody's non-strengths shadow. Most of the roles of the strengths, once you get a different position, whether you're a coordinator running the show or the expeditors, at least from what I got from watching the documentary, are all admin-based. Which you would think, like, okay, I mean, at least they're not, like, scrubbing the floors and being screamed at constantly. But... They're also boring as hell. And there is a catch to that because I bet that nobody really enjoys going around with a clipboard being somebody's shadow having to write every single infraction, quote unquote, that they commit. So expeditors will literally be following each and every one of these people, writing down whenever they commit a guilt. And the catch to those positions, as much as you want to move on from just doing menial jobs, being non-strength, being screamed at constantly, is that if you don't report enough guilt, that in itself is considered guilt at Ilan. So, if you don't report enough infractions in a day, on a person, and that, again, is a biased kind of opinion that is decided upon by your superiors, then you are the one who gets punished. So let me walk you through that procedure. Let's say an expeditor is your shadow. They're following you around with a clipboard. They're noting it down. Everything is literally divided there for them to list any sort of infraction. Once they do, they book an incident. What that means is that you are being picked up from wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, probably just actually scrubbing the side of the wall with a toothbrush, and you're walked into the office, where about four people are just screaming at you, how shit are you, you're not gonna progress, etc., etc. Making sure that they blow the most trivial incidents out of proportion, so that you don't do it again. These sessions and any sessions that are the punishments of the guilt are called learning experiences, and they are built on the object of humiliation. They can be, and you want it to be, going into the office when somebody reports on you and, like, a couple of people screaming at you. It will break you psychologically, but with time you'll learn that that is actually the least violent and just the least torturous method that they established at Elan. Another one that some of you might think, oh, wow, that actually doesn't sound even that drastic, is called the corner. And it is literally what it says on a tin. Like, remember if you were a child and your parents told you to go and, like, sit in a corner or just stand in the corner, or maybe that was a method that they disciplined you in school... And you would quite literally just stand in a corner and look at the wall. But here, that would last sometimes for months. There are kids that would, for six months, just either sit on a chair or stand. And that was literally what you would do the whole day. You had the option between sitting and standing. You can't talk to anybody else but the expeditor. The person that is literally noting down how you're acting in a corner. The levels of punishments increase with your time in Elan. You would think once you actually know what the count is guilt, once you improve your behavior, that they would decrease, but that would be contradictory because they don't want you to reach that last stage. They don't really want you to graduate because then who is going to get off on torturing these young children? They don't want you at that point. So at some point, once you learn what guilt is, then they would make rather order for all of these students to write down their guilts on a piece of paper. And then that would be like, I'm attracted to somebody. Like, you would write whatever you really want, and obviously there are teenagers there, so, usually they'd write like, oh, I hate doing XYZ task, or like, I'm attracted to this person. And then they would take those pieces of paper from those students, show them to the administration, and in turn, the administration is going to use that information to humiliate or blackmail those students the administration would thrive on those guilt surrounding sexual promiscuity. Sometimes you wouldn't even have to confess. Because you are craving human touch so much, even if you were to just, like, hold hands with somebody for about five seconds in the lawn, you would be put in a costume. Like, an actual costume. So, like, short shorts and, like a skimpy little shirt. Basically, the intention was to dress them as a sex worker. And then you were to pose in one of the meetings in front of everybody with a poster saying, ask me why I'm a whore. And then they would have to ask you why you are a whore and humiliate you further. They had other costumes as well. If you were to innocently suggest, oh, we used to have a dog at home, so like, why don't we have pets here? Well, then you would be dressed as a dog and would be only allowed to bark for a couple of days. If you were to complain of the living conditions, for example, like, oh, I didn't get to shower in hot water or whatnot, like, I'm not eating enough, then they would place you at an actual dumpster that is on the location. There are pictures in this documentary of kids living out of those dumpsters for two weeks. Dumpsters and actual designated costumes to work towards humiliation are usually reserved for the escapees. Most of the time, you don't even actually get the chance to escape. First of all, you get a sense that you're in the middle of nowhere, so you know that there is no point. But also because everybody's controlling at all time. You literally have a shadow there 24 hours a day. But referring back to those rules, things like being sad, looking outside or thinking about escaping, which nobody can read thoughts. We are all on the same page on that. So, if your expeditor is like, hey, I believe they're thinking, they're having bad thoughts, and their thoughts are about escaping, well, that's enough for you to be considered a split risk. And if you are a teen that is designated as a split risk, You're given shoes without laces, and you're forced to wear bright yellow shirts and skimpy little pink shorts. If you actually tried to run away, they would always catch you, but if you ran away more than once, you would be forced to wear a pink rabbit suit and then walk without any shoes and wear leg shackles. The other onesies and designated costumes were also there for a purpose of you knowing what the true core values of Elan were. For example, attacking either running away, escaping, which is technically your previous life, then immaturity, and not focusing enough on the academics. So, you now know you will be in shackles, you would be in this weird-ass rabbit onesie if you were to escape. If you were to be deemed immature, again, by somebody's opinion, then you would be forced to wear diapers over your clothes, put a pacifier into your mouth, and walk around carrying rattles. And, of course, not be able to talk, because babies cannot talk. If you were to be doing poorly in your academics and your studies, then you are to wear humiliating signs listing your guilts, your offenses, or a giant dance cap all day long. So, in this documentary, you would see kids wearing that huge dance cap. I didn't even know what that meant, but they show it in there quite literally in class. And then those kids are the ones subjected to verbal abuse by peers, teachers, literally anybody that whole day. But when focusing on humiliation in particular, because I think we all agree there are different versions of punishments in this story, Ilan was quite famous for what was known as a general meeting. Depending on what kind of guilt you were to commit, you would have different kinds of learning experiences. So, we mentioned some of them. Some of them are based fully on humiliation, just you standing outside, living out of a dumpster, or just being dressed in a onesie, or you walking into an office to be screamed at. However, if a student commits a guilt, and the school administrator deems it big enough to call a general meeting, they just yell it across the house, and then the entire house that would usually consist of 60 or more boys and girls would join into this room. You, the offender, would be separated from the rest of the room by this broomstick. You would be standing for over 40 minutes sometimes, while the whole house is screaming at you, at the top of their lungs. The administrator would yell, get your feelings off, and then each and every student in that room would start screaming, degrading, insulting, Everything that you can think about, you just scream back. And you, behind that broomstick, you can't respond. You won't be able to respond to any of those insults. It didn't matter if you were crying or begging them to stop until the administrator deems that you are completely emotionally broken, the screaming would not stop. And these general meetings were a very regular occurrence. They would happen almost every single day, usually multiple times a day. According to those interviewed for the last stop, they usually wouldn't witness a single day without a general meeting. And if we turn this around and think about what the staff members, what the administrators, what Joey and Gerald are getting out of this, well, meetings like this at least in my opinion, would be the prime weapon in their arsenal, because they would be the true representation of what this school was all about. You know, there is that whole representation of what they sell to the parents, and then there is what they actually want. They want these kids to be psychologically broken, and they want them to be broken that way by their own peers. If you were not to participate in one such meeting, that is considered guilt, that is considered an offense, and, of course, it's punishable. So, in a way, it takes the humanity from both parties, the one screaming and then the supposed offender. When you wouldn't be screaming your soul out in one of those general meetings, then you would be screaming in the events that were called encounter groups, where the teens would sit in circle, usually they would hold hands, and then one of them would sort of say they're killed. They would state something that really hurts them, that pains them inside. There's this clip from The Last Stop where she's saying that she's lonely and that she's in pain because of that. And then she would be asked to scream it out loud while other people are screaming it back at her.
2: I'm
1: lonely and it hurts me.
2: You would think about a feeling that you had that made you sad.
1: I'm lonely and it hurts me.
2: That you felt bad about.
1: Think about what goes on inside. I'm lonely and it hurts me. Let's
2: go. I'm scared. I hate my father. Uh, This person raped me.
1: I'm lonely and it hurts me.
2: It was trying to go to your most inner... Child. I'm lovely, and it
1: hurts me. A hood.
2: I'm lovely, and it hurts me. The wounds just left unidentified. I'm so.
0: Now, before we dive into how the rest of each and every day in Ilan school would develop, let us just have a bit of a breather, because here is where I kind of had to pause it, and I was like, what am I watching? This was the moment when I knew I will have to research a bit onto the history of this program of CNN and everything, to sort of even try to comprehend. Because here is when you finally realize somebody needs to be sadistic. They need to be beyond the point of no return. Somebody like Joey Ritchie, Gerald, like everybody running this place and eventually with brainwashing certain people that would then graduate and decide to also stay on board and condone this to happen for months multiple years or even months, in order for something like this to happen. Because just imagine yourself, because this is what so many of these students went through, going into a place where You just hear screams. There's somebody scrubbing the toilet. There's a person dressed in a diaper there. There's people living out of a dumpster. There's a general meeting in progress in one room. There's other people screaming, holding hands in another. One person walking into an office to be again screamed at by the admin people. You are just stunned. You're like, did I just walk into a circus? Because this makes no sense. Like, What am I witnessing? I just wanted the breather because at this point in the documentary, I paused it and I was like, you really need to get off on this. You need to know what's happening and to get off on every single part of this in order for this to continue to happen. When it comes to the academics, just like with everything else, there was the front that was promised to the parents, and then there was what was the reality of things. And the reality was that the school, which is why I left this part towards the end, was usually run between 7 p.m. and 11 p.m., So, usually it only lasted for four hours, and students would be told to grade their own work. There was no music class, there was no art class, no tests, no group projects or tutors, and the school didn't really supply them with any material, no notebooks or, like, study books supplied just like with everything else the importance here wasn't for you to be educated for you to actually get out and be this upstanding member of the society the whole point was that in this whole la-la land in the land's own world you earn everything as a privilege so even to go to school you have to earn to go there. You have to be on a certain level of that hierarchy. And this is so well portrayed in that documentary, the fact that it's like two different worlds. There is the reality, there is the real world, that they all eventually return to, and then were incapable of being these upstanding citizens in. Because A, they would be emotionally broken, but also, if you think about it, they would be spending their teenage years when they were supposed to be in school, graduating, going to college, just attending this bullshit Elan school of four hours where they learned nothing. And even if you were to get the privilege to go to school, it wouldn't match up the grades outside. And the graduation from Elan had nothing to do with graduating from the actual school. Ilan made money based on the amount of time it took you as a student to graduate the program. And students had to have the minimum of seven promotions before you even were considered a candidate for graduation. Each promotion would take a minimum of three months, and 90% of the kids never even made it past the fifth promotion. So those kids had to wait until they turned 18 and could legally sign themselves out. The idea of having a night school came from Joey Ritchie, and he did it because he understood that teenagers would be more susceptible to suggestion and easier to control if they were sleep-deprived. So, let's say around 11 p.m., the school would end, and the students would finally be sent to their rooms. And these were military-style, as I explained, it's just like bunk beds on top of one another. But even then, even though you are emotionally and physically exhausted, you would most probably struggle to fall asleep. Because here, another bullshit role on the hierarchy pops in, and these were the guards that were called night owls. Those guards would be waiting both on the outside and the inside of the room, and usually they would just be, like, shining the flashlights at random times. Sometimes they would even physically go in a couple of times at night to sort of check the covers, check under the covers, check that nobody managed to escape. Once you were to complete the program, school and then sleep, which were the typical parts that a day in Ilan's school was divided in, you would wake up the next morning, usually around 7 a.m. and go through it all again. Ilan also had designated meal times that they named meal kicks, and these meal times were insanely short. Sometimes they would last between five to eight minutes, but often it was simply between one to four. And students were served food according to their own rank. This, in turn, would mean that many students would go hungry. They'd be hungry and sleep-deprived, because they usually wouldn't even have the chance to receive the food before the meal ended. And eating after the meal times ended is considered guilt and is punished like everything else. Everything so far was sort of a day in a life at Ilan School. Everything that I mentioned would occur on a daily basis. Everything from humiliation to general meetings. In one form or the other, you would be emotionally, physically, psychologically broken by the end of the day. But there are other dark sides to Ilan that often aren't spoken about. And here I will put a timestamp on the screen if... People want to skip this part of the video because it is about sexual abuse. There were different forms of sexual abuse that were reported at Elan School, and in short, nobody was ever charged for any of it, including Joey Ritchie, who was responsible for most of it. In the documentary, this specific part isn't mentioned as sexual abuse, but in my opinion, it definitely should be. So, depending on the severity of the guilt... As I mentioned, it means just depending on who was in the mood to really get a kick out of the certain punishment they were inflicted that day. You could go to the room, and here, like with most of the learning experiences, they are usually implemented by the peers, and then also by the staff members. So, the last stop mentions multiple times that you would get spanked. If you were acting in a childish way, you know, you would either end up in a diaper being displayed and humiliated, or you would go behind closed doors and According to Joey Ritchie, you would only get two to three spanks with a clipboard. One of those that the expeditors would be using. But of course, the situation here was much worse. There was this really talented woman that was featured in the documentary that drew all of the caricatures, that drew all of the comics, in a way, of her time there, in order to cope with trauma. And she even published a book containing them. And she would draw these really graphic ones, displaying that depending on who would really take turns, depending on how sadistic people were, sometimes they would be using special pedal boards. Sometimes they would have nails on them so that the people on the receiving end of those spankings would really be in pain.
1: She was in the middle of a nervous breakdown, so they spanked her. That's one resident spanking another resident and it's done with a ping pong paddle.
2: For the first two years that I was there, they would spank with a clipboard. Clipboards, um... hands, (laughs) hands, <laughs> ink,
1: here. Yeah. Uh, usually a person won't get spanked more than once or twice. Usually when they use a paddle, they may have four or five people spank a person like three to five times each. They'd have the students lined up, five or six of them, and they would each have to take a turn at paddling the wrongdoer. So she was being spanked repeatedly in wet pants. Well, when they spanked me, I mean, they didn't have to spank me, so I turned black and blue. Simple as that. I mean, that was just one time after another. I was
0: so sorry I sit down. In other cases, a male staff members would be exposing themselves in front of female students, repeatedly asking them how she feels about it. And the staff members condoned this because they said it is the part of their rehabilitation process, calling it love therapy just as a proof that if staff members condone it, not only will you not be charged, prosecuted, they're not gonna call the police on you, but you will also be promoted, was the case of a guy called Ronnie Evans. He allegedly raped one of the female students in the woods when they were both enrolled in school, and despite of being disciplined, because, again, he was a student, you know, sex is guilt and whatever, well... He was not just not charged, but he was made a staff member by Ilan only months later. But the worst of the worst here would be when it was condoned by the school's own owner, the person that is supposed to reform, that is supposed to protect them. And here, there were allegations that both Joey Ritchie was involved in sexual abuse, that he was himself abusing girls, and then once they were to report it, he would make sure they were subjected to repeated general meetings, verbal abuse, or months in isolation as a punishment on wanting to actually report the incident to the police and the outside world, or he was facilitating it. A former student mentioned this incident, where he said that Joey locked two teenage girls in a room with two boys who had criminal records for rape. Because at this point, as we have learned, the school was taking just anybody off the streets. And Richie told the boys to do what they want with the girls. So they were sexually assaulted. The same person that reported on this later said that these girls were actually made to stay in that locked room with their assailants for a few weeks, enduring repeated abuse. If you're joining me beyond that timestamp, thinking that this is where I'm gonna talk about how this was all uncovered and how the school finally went into administration, we aren't there yet because we are yet, somehow, to talk about one of the worst punishments that Ilan School could provide. With general meetings, the whole core of that punishment was for students to be so deprived of any form of interaction, any form of expression of their frustration during their teenage years, when they're super hormonal, when they're so pissed with their conditions there, because everything would result in guilt, and you couldn't insult people back. So, that was the whole core of going into a general meeting, for people to finally actually scream all those frustrations out at one person. Eventually, that just wouldn't cut it, because the sadistic people that were in charge of these students knew that they would also be physically itching to fight somebody to express their anger. And that is where the ring filled in the gap. In order to ensure that somebody is actually itching for that violence, usually they would make sure that a non-strength is working against the strength. So, for example, a non-strength can be caught trying to escape, and then their big brother, the shadow that is supposed to monitor them and prevent that from happening, is punished, and they're doing manual labor, they're back to day one. So, they would be pissed, and they would want to fight somebody who caused them to be in that position. It comes as no surprise, when, you know, Joey Richie's background of gambling, batting on horses, that the ring fights would usually be advertised as entertainment. They would have everything that a usual boxing match would. Moderators, umpires giving play-by-play updates on the matches, you know, that whole communications office would suddenly have their time to shine. If you were high up in the hierarchy, you could even place bets on different matches and wager money on how many opponents a student could fight before they are defeated. You're probably thinking now, well, that's not how a boxing match works. What do you mean multiple students are going to be sent in? Like, isn't it one-on-one? No. The whole principle of it is that there is a bully. Well, rather, the bully. These are supposed to be the actual bullies. Because the land school eventually accepted anybody, which means people with rape charges, people with minor sexual assault offenses, kind of like Joey Ritchie, who were forgiven by the court and instead sent by one such school that should reform them. Well, those kids, of course, or the ones that would, like, engage in battery, on fights on the streets, well, those would kind of display those levels of violence within Ilan's school. And those would be considered the bullies. So, if you were to intimidate others, and it's not your place to be doing so, the ring would be put in place. That would be the principle, but it wasn't how it actually operated. Sometimes the bully could just be the person that tried to run away the non-strength, the weakest link that just on that day committed the guilt and somebody wanted the ring to happen. Somebody wanted to possibly just bet some money on how long it will take to beat this poor kid up.
1: Okay, which uh, everybody misinterprets. It's it's not a boxing ring, it's a ring of human people. Alon's boxing ring was used as a last resort therapeutic tool Uh, I once heard a staff member refer to it as an exercise in futility pretty much to prove that violence will get you nowhere the ring was used for bullies if you went in a ring it's because you physically threatened somebody any kind of violent action resulted in the ring
2: it occurs within a general meeting they have uh, let's say 10 students 15 students form a circle, you would literally form a human circle around someone. And
0: the bully is introduced as what he is. In this corner is the bully who's trying to turn this facility into a detention center. The whole house would again go into the room, they'd take the chairs out, they would form a human circle, and the bully and their opponent would be given gloves. The whole point is that the bully cannot win. They're not allowed to rest, but their opponents can. And if the opponent would get tired or beaten up, then somebody else would step in and take their place. And you
1: never won We never allowed the bully to win You might win one or two rounds No, I didn't even try I just went down my lived like this You might beat this person And you might beat that person, But
3: they keep coming They keep coming They keep sending a fresh person And when that person got tired They
1: would send somebody else in
3: You were boxing 6-7 fresh people So,
1: like, if
2: you were actually four You'd really get beat up Yeah, well, it's sort of You could say a kill situation
0: As everybody is expressing All of their bottled up emotions in this ring. Everybody that is put in wants to beat this bully up. And if they are injured enough, if they can't fight anymore, sometimes the administrators would hold them up for them to be beaten. So it will come as no surprise that the ring took a terrible toll on everybody. A lot of them suffered permanent brain damage or just PTSD. But also, in 1982, the abuse within the ring took the life of a 15-year-old student called Phil Williams. Phil Williams, just like so many of the older generations that went to Elan school, came from foster care. Because if you're a foster child and they find you a family, read a Reformation school that will keep you there until you're 18 here, well, Joey Ritchie is gonna get his payday. Phil came from a broken family. When he was nine, his dad was sent to prison for beating up his mom, and after that, Williams grew up in foster care system with his sister. And he was sent to Ilan because of his constant fits of rage. When sent to Elan, he would take this anger out and he was the one who would constantly speak back to Steph. He just didn't care about complying. So, one day, they put him into the ring and he was beaten so badly that he ended up dying. But the school told Phil's family in the end that he died of a brain aneurysm and no charges were ever filed. The reason why we have all of those recordings, the old footage of the ring, and also the old footage of a person with a dance cap sitting in a class, everything that you're seeing through this documentary and through this episode, is because NBC made the whole report in 1979. And you would think that would be an expose. They would go speak to the students, actually see the real treatment, and finally the school would be shut down. But that is far from the truth. This reporting by the NBC was titled For the Child's Own Good, and it painted Richie and Ilan School as mentors and teachers that seek to rehabilitate troubled teens. CBS 60 Minutes called it a revolutionary new type of therapy that could steer troubled teens back onto the right path. And if you're wondering whether the state of Maine knew of the abuse, you know, once people actually either graduated or rather turned 18 and could legally sign themselves out... They probably spoke of the abuse, and they did. And it did reach the police reports, it did reach the state of Maine, and a total of 11 investigations were conducted. But none of them ever resulted in criminal charges, and no action was taken against Ritchie or the school administration. And this, combined by the NBC's reporting of it, even though, from what I've seen from the old footage, they sort of shared Joey Richie's version of events, you know, the fact that it's just two slaps, or, you know, yeah, it is humiliation, but it's not as extreme, because they didn't portray everything that came out when the last stop documentary did, was completely legal. And that is why it wasn't considered as serious. The beatings, the verbal and mental abuse, the corporal punishment, the humiliation, all of it, whether or not corroborated by dozens of witnesses, dozens of people that have experienced it, was legal. But what wasn't legal was murder. On October the 30th, 1975, in the suburb of wealthy town of Greenwich in Connecticut, a 15-year-old Martha Moxley was hanging out with her group of friends, just throwing toilet paper at the houses, chatting with the boys, because it was a day before Halloween, and she just wanted to have fun. At some point that night, Martha left the group and she just walked off with a boy called Thomas Skakel. He would be the last person to see Martha alive. The following morning, the Moxley family found Martha's dead body lying under the tree in their backyard. Martha was bludgeoned to death with a golf club until it broke and then the broken pieces of that club were used to stab her to death. The suspicion immediately fell on the last person that saw Martha alive, Thomas Skakel, but he would never end up being charged, and the case went cold until 1978, when Thomas's brother, 18-year-old Michael Skakel, was sent to Elan School when he was arrested for drunk driving. There are two versions of where this story goes, and the latter one is more acceptable. One version is that Michael would brag about killing Martha, telling two other students that he bludgeoned her to death. Well, he told that he bludgeoned 15-year-old girl to death, pulling off her clothes, sexually assaulting her, and then masturbating near her body, which is how Martha's body had been found. The more accepted version, and the version that the documentary mentions, was that Michael was put inside of a ring for committing guilt. And while in this ring, while being emotionally and physically exhausted, the other party, the other people that were boxing him almost to death, were asking him to admit it. To admit that he was behind this offense. That he killed Martha Moxley. And in the end... He caved in and admitted to it. But nothing came out of this. These facts were not told to the police for another 20 years. However, in January of 2000, the state of Connecticut charged Michael Skakel with the murder of Martha Moxley. And the case made national news because the Skakel brothers were the nephews of the Kennedy family, of Robert Kennedy in particular. But because Skakel's case was entirely based off of the testimony of his classmates, Ilan School was also to a degree on trial. This meant that, finally, all of the publicity towards Ilan School was negative. And that didn't really work into the whole concept of Joey Ritchie and what he's trying to represent, and... The letter, the whole ring defense, was used by Skakel's defense team. And this is when all of the dirty laundry actually came out. Having in mind that this is 2000, the internet is starting to become a thing, and people are more and more spreading the rumors about Ilan. So, in order to make sure that he defends his school, Well, Ritchie decided to publicly come to the defense of Michael Skakel. He said that the allegations that Skakel confessed to murder while in Elan school, this whole ring thing, is absurd. And he didn't do this because he believed that Skakel was innocent. Rather, he was just trying to keep the attention away from the school and for the public to focus still on this trial and the person that is being prosecuted for it. But in the middle of all of this, karma got to Joey Ritchie before the fucking court system could, because he was diagnosed in June of 2000 with a stage 4 lung cancer. Because karma doesn't give people the same sentence that they have inflicted on others, barely seven months after his diagnosis, Joey Ritchie died in a hospital in Maine. He was 54 years old at his death. And a person that was to inherit mostly the mess rather than the actual school because upon this trial, because of the Kennedy connection, nobody really wanted to send their kids to Elan any longer. After Rich's death, his wife inherited all of that. Her name is Sharon, and she took it over, but she didn't really understand, like, how bad the whole situation was. By the time Sharon implemented her own reforms, such as abolishing the ring, but still using corporate punishment, also still using general meetings, which is kind of mental torture in itself, Michael Skakel was convicted and sentenced to 20 years in prison for Martha Moxley's murder. And this in turn meant that all of the controversy surrounding the Lyons school wasn't about to die out. For each and every good report, for each and every attempt that Sharon tried to say something good about the school, there were now about hundreds of reports saying the complete opposite. And soon they even had some stats to back this up, after so many people came forward stating their abuse. Out of 117 students that were sent there one year, Upon their release, 70 of them ended up being arrested. And that further proved and just consolidated in everybody's minds that there was never any medical standards of evidence proving that one such therapy that Joey Ritchie established in that school has ever worked. But the human experience beyond that school is what really gets to so many people. So many people in this documentary describe that upon release, of course, you go back to meet your friends, meet your family, you try to push it behind, you try to put it away, but then after a month, you realize you have no idea how to live in the actual world. You were supposed to be in a certain grade of school now, but you really can't go back with the knowledge that you have acquired in Elan. You're supposed to get a job, but Ilan didn't teach you shit. So a lot of them just fall back right into their addictions, into what got them there in the first place. And even if they try to pick up from where they left it off and go to college, go to schools, usually college because they're 18 and over, there, again, they don't know how to focus on education, so they go back to partying because they have missed out on it for some of the best years of their life. All of that eventually gets to them. And once they feel down, they hear the voices from the general meetings. They hear all of the screams, everybody humiliating them, belittling them, saying how unworthy they are of love, of really anything else, anybody taking care of them. One of the more famous people that went to Elan school was Ben Weasel, who was the founder of the pun rock band called Screeching Weasel. He was sent there as a teen, and he also said that for two years he was simply just abused and dehumanized. And that led him just like with Paris Hilton and Provo Canyon School, to again channel all of that trauma into a certain part of their life and become super successful, but on the other end, it just seeps into their day-to-day life. And Ben said that he suffers from chronic anxiety, panic attacks, and agoraphobia, which is when you're feeling that you are in prison and there is no way of escape. With these stories finally being heard, and with the rise of internet, another platform that was just founded was Reddit. In 2005, Reddit was founded, and it quickly became popular for exactly that. People starting threads, and then other people chipping in, sharing their own opinions. For five years, between 2005 and 2010, Reddit had dozens of forums dedicated to Elan School, where former students discussed their own horror stories. They started spreading the word, educating people on what actually happens in those schools. And then, because all of them were also based now in different states, and also were spreading the word, they organized petitions, getting their representatives of each and every state, urging them to take action to shut down Elan and to put the end to the abuse. And finally, on March the 23rd, 2011, Joey Rich's second wife, Sharon Terry, announced that Ilan's school would be closing down. At that point, it only had a couple of students remaining. So on April the 1st, 2011, they dismissed them and it finally shut its doors for good. Nobody, not Sharon, no other staff member, no teacher, quote-unquote, no administrator ever faced any criminal charges in connection with their time at the Alliance School. To this day, although we can celebrate the closure of one such school, although we can celebrate that people have come out of it, that there weren't any other casualties, at least that we know of, There are so many people that were responsible here that are just walking free. And that is the horrible, insane story of the alarm school. There are some stories where, you know, I research, I record, and then I edit. And you can kind of move on from it. You can kind of close it into this drawer. It still lives in the back of your head, but you eventually move on from it. This just isn't one of them. I will probably rewatch the that documentary again at some point in my life, probably multiple times, just because of how well it was done, but just also how fucking insane this is. And something that I mentioned in the main episode on Paris Hilton and Provo Canyon School and that I can't just remove off of my mind is just how easy it would have been for people in power, for people who actually have this amount of money to send these kids to schools, you know, for the first generations. And then even later, I'm not talking here about foster children, I'm not even talking about courts, or just somebody ending up in the system and then being sent because they were from the broken family. But the rich people, the people with clout, that had connections, that could have, you know, picked up their phone and just called somebody, been like, give me a background on this Joey Ritchie guy. Are all of the people under him accredited? Do they all have degrees in this area? Am I sending my child to be educated? How does the schooling system look like? Walk me through it. Because at some point, one of them would have caved, one of them would have slipped up. Like, you can't tell me that Joey Ridge actually knew what was going on in all of the formal areas. Like, the school, he didn't give a fuck about that. What are they being taught for four hours? If you were to question somebody like him on that, he'd not know what to actually answer. And I don't want to blame the parents here. I don't want to blame even the representatives of the state, people who could have actually looked into, because if you blame anybody else, but the people actually committing those crimes, then you're kind of neglecting the severity of the whole situation. But again, why do we only find out about the tip of the iceberg when people actually went there? actual news organizations went there, and they were just like, oh, everything is completely fine. Like, how do we not see through these layers? Because it allows for this form of systematic abuse to continue. If you want to learn more about this particular case... I suggest watching The Last Stop. I suggest watching Liz Wakeford's video on Martha Moxley case, because I think there's even a two-parter. She has just, like, broken it down really nicely, and it goes, of course, in a lot more detail than me spending a couple of minutes here just telling you the information that was pertinent to this case. And I'd also suggest listening to either my episode on Paris Hilton or watching her documentary, This is Paris, signing the petition to close the Provo school. That will be in the description box. And just educating yourself, like, does your state, like, Utah, Maine, whatever it is in that area, basically have a school like this? And what you can do to make sure that they end up being shut down. And in doing so, you are going to be step-by-step step making this world a bit, tiny bit of a better place. One motive, one reform school for troubled teenagers shut down at a time. I shall be seeing you later. Merry Christmas. So yeah, posting this on Christmas. God, God help us all. Actually, God help us. Is this is Christmas? Wait, is this week Christmas? I'm, I don't know, calendar. It is what it is. (laughs) Fuck it, it is what it is. Merry Christmas, everybody. This is depressing. This is. So you need to start actually scheduling this. Oh god, Merry Christmas. I'm so sorry. I'm actually sorry.